Good morning, River Church. We are so glad to be with you this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. I hope you were with us uh, last week for Mother's Day. Wasn't that awesome to see those videos of the kids telling about their moms? Todd and I laughed and cried listening to those little kids talk about all of you. So thank you for those of you who sent videos in. They make such a difference, don't they? We really get an inside look at people's homes and their lives. So we are just heading into another week of COVID and this has been tough to get this news of the further limitations. Although we can put our feet in the sand, it is so sad to think that we're gonna be home for another couple months. It affects so many of us in different ways and we want you to know that we see you, we pray for you and we are with you. This is, um, very, this is a very difficult time as we all know and we are so with you. We are really thankful. Um, last week we gathered 800 pounds from all of you for the LA mission under the leadership of Lloyd and Susan Mensinger and Debbie Trethaway. Thank you so much. They couldn't believe how much you all contributed. I think they had to take either two cars or two trips to get it all down there. So way to go River Church. We are so proud of you and your generous hearts. And then we just wanna say a thank you to our video team. You all know we are a relational church. I would say that is one of the strongest aspects of our community. And yet people have stepped up under the Turnbow's leadership to present this YouTube service to you. And we are so thankful for this opportunity. So thank you for joining us and being with us in this journey. And lastly, um, as we look ahead, we see that this is a strategic opportunity because we can let go of things that aren't important and we can lean into things that might be new as we dream and pray and look to the future. This may be a way for God to do something new that we've never seen before. So join us in prayer. We are actively meeting, discussing, strategizing, and asking the Lord to lead us into this new way as soon as COVID's over and even right now during COVID. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're putting together a survey that will be sent out to each of you to get your feedback on how we can approach the future and maybe some ideas you have. So we would love your feedback. Expect that in uh, on over email. Let us let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together this morning, to worship together. We thank you for the River Church, God, and the community that surrounds us. We thank you for the people in other states that are watching. God, we bring together our hearts, our mind, and our praise as we worship you. And God, as you teach us through Pastor Todd, my hubby, and God, as just as you work among us, and we just pray that you would anoint this service in your presence would be over every element as we look to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. the king of
I was headed down was not a good one and it wasn't going to lead me in, into the blessings he had in store for me. Hi my name is Evelyn and 
I am originally from the East Coast. My husband Alex and I moved here about a year ago to the South Bay and joined the River Church. I grew up uh, in, in upstate New York to a family of six kids. My eldest sister had uh, some, some challenges growing up. It pushed me to be this type A driven person. So when I graduated college, I had the opportunity, opportunity to go to law school, but I actually turned it down uh, to go work on a congressional campaign in Maryland. When thinking about the question, what is or who is my first love, at that moment in my life, it was myself. I wanted to establish myself. I wanted to have this, this future, and this is how I was going to do it. So I picked up my bags and moved, took off, and was on this big adventure, and then soon realized how difficult real life was. Every decision I had made throughout my life, I thought I had a purpose attached to it. So when my life circumstances started to change and things became difficult, I started to experience loss, heartache, emotions of, of loneliness and just fear that I, I wasn't going in the right direction in my life. There was a moment I hit my rock bottom and cried out to God. Maybe even a couple months after that experience with the Lord, um, and I, I was introduced to my husband, and I, I, that came out of the blue. And choosing to, to really cry out to God and mean it, and not just cry out because I'm blaming him. He had so many good intentions for me. I feel like he is so gracious and merciful to always be there for me and, and hear me and see me and be with me when I cry out to him. I really believe that's what experiencing God's love is. Hey, what's up? We're continuing our series in Resurrection Life. And this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, the great commandment. And I think the idea of the great commandment is this, that not all loves are equal. And we're gonna look at that this morning. I made a new discovery, and I gotta be honest with you, I, I uh, had taught this passage several months ago, and I wrote something down that I didn't totally connect with, and I now do, and it's out of this passage. You know, new, new discoveries are great, right? I mean, uh, maybe it's a new hiking trail or a new, uh, new cut, uh, shortcut to get to work. Or uh, I remember when I was a kid, my mom introduced me to a peanut butter, banana, and mayonnaise sandwich. Now, you might think that's disgusting, but uh, it was a new discovery for me. I, I don't eat those anymore, but I used to. New discoveries are great. And here's the new discovery for me. It comes out of Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees and they're asking him a question about what is the greatest commandment. And then Jesus says these words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. One of these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. And here's the idea. I think I used to understand the Christian life as an accumulation of knowledge. That if I just accumulated a lot of knowledge, that it would be powerful. That somehow knowledge is power. I probably got that from my dad. My dad was a very smart man. Um, he was an orthodontist and, and uh, he accumulated a lot of knowledge, very, very sharp. And maybe it was from uh, going to college. Um, I went to Cal Berkeley and I was around a lot of smart people. I mean, I remember students would start studying before the quarter even began. And so I was always around people like that. And maybe that's where this idea came from. But then this new discovery. 
and I remember teaching on this several uh, months ago, I said these words. This is what I said in the middle of this sermon on the great commandment. I said, we don't follow the commandments of God in order to love God. We love God as a result, we desire to be obedient to the commandments. And there is a marked difference. I think that's precisely what's going on in this passage here this morning, in this dialogue between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And isn't it ironic? The question is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest thing we can do? And Jesus responds. They weren't sure whether he would come up with the right answer. They, were, they thought maybe he would uh, choose one of the many commandments and not the commandment. I mean, maybe they thought there were so many, it was now confusing to them. I mean, they knew the answer. They already knew the answer. It was the Shema. They knew that twice a day, Jews would practice the Shema, reading it orally. They knew that the Shema spoke of loving God with all their heart, and with all their mind, and with all their soul. They already knew the answer. So what's going on in this passage? What happened? I think what happened is they got tripped up. They put practice and they put uh, the, the promises of God in terms of their knowledge of it before loving God. And that's what Jesus is referring to. It's, it's the practices come, the promises come, but you need to first understand what it means to love God. That's what the passage is about. And they challenge them. So let's take a look at this. Dr. Mike Wilkins was one of my favorite professors at seminary. A great mentor, a friend of mine. He said that the Jews understood this. They understood that this Shema, this love God with all your mind, is the greatest commandment, and they practiced it orally. But they also knew that it was the intention of their heart to be obedient to the, to the Word of God. Did you catch that? that? That Dr. Wilkins is pointing out, they knew that when they spoke it, it was the intention of their heart, and that's what Jesus is going after in Matthew chapter 22. To love God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul is all about the deeper inner life of the believer. That's where it begins. It's not an accumulation of knowledge. It's understanding your true love. And so I want to look at that this morning. But before I do, I just have two ideas. What does it really look like to love God? And how do we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul? But before I do, I want to tell you a story. I want to first tell, tell you a kind of a personal um, story. And that story is about, I think, an inner struggle in my own life. I, I really get this. I think I finally now resonate with this passage because I think I have lived with a silent war going on in my deepest inner self. And that deep war is a war between desires. And which desire is going to rule the day? A desire, I have desires, I have wants, I have um, insecurities, jealousy, um, control, um, things that I think sometimes are deeper desires, wanting attention, wanting to be noticed, that are driving me. And I'm realizing how that has to change. As one author says, it's a recalibration of your loves. That's what following the great commandment is. Let me tell you another story. It's a story of Malcolm X. This may be a crazy story for you. I read the, I read the autobiography of um, Malcolm X many, many years ago, probably five, six years ago. And a buddy of mine, Fran Vergie, and a group of guys were gathered together in the morning and, and we were reading books and, and we get together and he said, let's read this book. So I started reading it. And about halfway through, I said, I can't read anymore. It's a story of his life. Hard, totally hard challenge, challenging childhood led him to Harlem, New York, got involved in many illicit activities, landed in prison, 10-year sentence. 
It's where he got an education, but it's also where he fell in love with the, the, the religion of, of Islam and became a Muslim. And out of prison, he meets a guy, Elijah Muhammad, who's a leader in the nation of Islam, that transforms his life and his thinking. And he becomes a spokesman for the nation of Islam. But I want to tell you the story. I, that's where I stopped because it was filled with hatred. It was filled with animosity. It was filled with, as he describes it, the black man versus the white man. And the evil white man has subjugated the black man. And it was hard to read. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I understood what was going on in that era in the 60s as Malcolm X described. But then something happened. His life was filled with such anger and hatred. I remember one scene in the book where after speaking, a young woman, just an innocent young woman comes up and says, isn't there any nice, good white people in the world today? And Malcolm X looked at him and said, no, and you aren't either. And it, it just grabbed me. Like, what is going on with him? And then all of a sudden, a drastic, radical, change happens in his life. His leader falls, Elijah Muhammad. And second, he goes on a hajj to Mecca, and there he sees people from all different races, all different backgrounds, all different colors of skin, and he realizes something, that he has been speaking a message of hatred, and he changed it into a message of uniting all people, uniting all people of his belief Islam to stand for equal rights and his life changed. See, it was a misdriven passion in his life. He was misdirected. That's my point. My point simply is to, is to show us that it's so easy for our hearts to be misdirected, to grab onto something else. And when that changed deep in his life, his life course changed. He was assassinated, of course, in 1965. But before he died, he left a mark, just like Martin Luther King Jr. did. Different tactics. We might disagree in terms of his philosophy or his beliefs, but something changed in his life. And that's what I want to talk about for the Christian I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. Resurrection life is learning to love the right thing. That's what resurrection life is all about. Jesus had two ideas. First is you need to understand how to love God. And second, here's how you do it with all your heart, mind, and soul. The first one is to love God. Why is loving God so important? Why is it that Jesus says you have to love God first? What you love or who you love reveals your greatest desire. James Smith wrote a book called um, You Are What You Love. Fascinating book. Bill's reading it. James is reading it. Math's reading it. I had no idea. We were all reading it at the same time. You are what you love. What he basically says in this book is your desires define you. Your deepest desires define who you are. In fact, we all live for some end, telos is the way he describes it. We live for an end and, and your, dri your drive comes from your deep desires. And so what he's driving at is that you have to replace your desires with another desire. He says we're like, we're always moving toward an end. He calls us existential sharks. We're always moving. We're always going in a certain direction. He says, we live leaning forward, but in a direction of attaining a place we long for. A place we long for. I think he's getting at something. Let, let me show you in scripture. When we find love for God as our greatest love, and we put that first, it changes. It changes the course of our life. It is not about gaining knowledge that changes us per se. It is about changing our loves. That's where it begins. That's why Jesus said, love God. Love God first. Here's a couple examples. In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the fact that we have now been justified. We have peace with God. 
And then he goes on to say, even in the context of tribulation, we have peace with God. Why? Because the love of God is in our hearts. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, because the love of God is in your hearts, you will have peace even in tribulation. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says that the love of Christ controls us, that Christ died for us. Now we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Do you see that? What, what, Je- what, what Paul is saying is that what Jesus did by dying for us, we now live no longer for ourselves, but for him, because the love of Christ is first in our life. When you identify the desire of your heart, It will determine the course of your life. One of my favorite Christian writers, philosophers in all of history is St. Augustine. And he wrote a powerful story of his own conversion. It's called Confessions. And I want to read you a passage out of uh, Confessions. This is the story, the struggle of St. Augustine's life. St. Augustine admits to having a deep desire for sexual intimacy that drove him. It was a lust that drove him and drove his life. It drove the course of his life until he finally meets God. And in in the very first page of this book, I mean, he starts off with the premise and here it is. This is what he says. For thou has made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I've read that so many times, and now I finally understand it. Your heart will be restless the rest of your life until you find that your rest is in the love of God. That's what he's saying that we are existential sharks moving toward an objective. And until that objective becomes something greater than all the other desires in our life, we will continue to be restless. Well, you don't get the answer to this until chapter 13. And in chapter 13, here's what St. Augustine says about restlessness. You've got to see this. A body tends by its weight toward the place proper to it. Weight does not necessarily tend towards the lowest place, but toward its proper place. Fire tends upwards, stone towards uh, downwards. By their weight, they are moved and seek their proper place. Oil, it says, poured over water is born. On the surface of the water, water poured over oil sinks below the oil. It is by their weight that they are moved and seek their proper place. Things out of their place are in motion. They come to their place and are at rest. And then says these words, my love is my weight. His love, what he discovered, his conversion to Christ, giving up lesser desires, and when he found Christ and he put that in the first position in his life, he says that was the weight. That was so weighty. That was when his heart finally stopped becoming, stopped actually being restless. That's what happened. His heart slowed down and he finally found his rest in Christ. We are restless creatures. And what Jesus is saying, until the love of God is at that greatest point in your life, the greatest desire in your life, you will continue to be restless. Many people are restless today. And where's that restless coming from? Lesser desires. I've had several health challenges over the last several years. My heart continues to race. I continue to discover a sense of restlessness in my heart. And I had it out with God a couple weeks ago. 
I mean, I really had it out with God. I was on a walk. There were several people, a few people, but we were all kind of walking and uh, I kind of pulled off and they were talking and I was in my own world and all of a sudden God just hit me. He says, why is your heart restless? What's going on? And what came to mind is a verse that I read many, many weeks ago in Isaiah 43, where it simply says, God says to the people of Israel, I love you. I love you. I mean, they're right there in scripture. It's right. It's written in the Bible. God says, I love you in Isaiah chapter 43. And that just hit me. It just overwhelmed me. The ridiculous love of God overwhelmed me in that moment. And I felt like he said to me, I have this. It was one of those moments where I tasted the goodness of God, as the psalmist says, taste and see the Lord is good. I tasted God and I tasted the, the goodness of his love in that moment. And it, it was like, it was, it was as if, it's hard to explain, but all of the restlessness that was going on my heart, just, it left. It was just pushed out of my heart. Now, let's talk briefly before we end this morning about what does it really look like to love God? And we find it here in our text. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. I'm going to change the order of that. I'm going to talk about it in the order of heart, mind, and soul. And here we go. First of all, heart. How do we love God? We love him with all of our heart. The heart, here's the thing about the heart. The heart is very impressionable. In fact, the heart will be swayed unless it is protected. That's why we are to love God with our heart. And he points out heart because Jesus knew that the heart could be swayed one way or the other. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard over your heart for out of it flow all the issues of life. That's where we would set a guard. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word guard means literally the guard in a prison. That's how diligent we are to be over our hearts. Why? Because they can easily be swayed. Because the heart is the heart of passion. It's it's where life flows from. All the issues of life come from the heart. What if we get our heart lost? Or what happens if our heart is stolen? Reminds me of the the story of the wicked wicked witch in uh, The Wizard of Oz. The Tin Man was in love with a munchkin maiden and wanted to marry her. And the witch hated the tin man's love for this maiden. And so he enchanted his axe and the tin man cut off all of his limbs until finally he was nothing and replaced, and the witch replaced them with metal until finally he was only made of metal. The witch had stolen his heart. And here's what the tin man says in the book. He says, no one can love without his heart. When you lose your heart, you lose everything. He lost his love for the love of his life. Well, how's that happening? How's that happen? Buechner calls the heart the shimmering self. It's where passions and dreams and fears and your deepest wounds are found. What has stolen your heart? We are to guard over it, protect it from what is invading it. See, that's the first thing. That's how you love God is by protecting your heart. Protect it carefully. Guard over it. Don't let things or anything else steal the passion of your heart for God. You may have lost it. How are you going to get it back? Here's another idea. Your mind. The mind, I call the mind, the mind's important because The mind trains the heart. That's why Jesus says we love God with all of our minds, because the mind is the part of us that trains the heart. Love is a habit. Love's a habit. Uh, you, You habitually do what you do because you have trained your behaviors by responding to your first love. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. You habitually do what you do because you've trained 
your behaviors by responding to your first love. You know what your first love is. Now train it. That's what Jesus is saying. See, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, don't love the world, nor the things of the world. That is in contrast with the psalmist in Psalm 119, 97, who says, oh, I love thy law. Well, how do we love God's law and not love the world? How do we do that? See, our hungers are learned. I've had some issues with my heart and uh, my cardiologist and uh, others have uh, uh, consulted me on not just simply um, medication, but also on diet. And diet becomes really important um, for any kind of a heart issue. And so I have had to retrain, not that I had bad eating habits, but I could eat pretty much grew up eating whatever I wanted. But what I have learned to do is to train my body to eat what is best for me. It's a training process. And now I hunger not for what I shouldn't eat, but for what I should eat. Does that make sense? That now I actually desire... And so I can drive by a hamburger joint and go, oh man, I'd love a hamburger. I just keep driving by. I don't need it. I don't want it. I know it doesn't represent. Now you may love hamburgers and that's fine and you may be able to eat them. That's great. And there's nothing wrong with a hamburger, but it, it represents for me eating something that isn't good for my heart. And all of a sudden, something's changed. My deepest wants and desires have totally changed. That's what happens when we find love for God and love, loving God with our minds. Revelation chapter two, verse four says this, to the church of Ephesus, you have left your first love. How are you gonna get your first love back? Repent and do the deeds you did in the beginning. Go back to where you were early in your life. What did you used to do that trained your life to love God? Begin to do those spiritual practices. What spiritual practices do you have? Here's the last thing, our final thing, and that is to love God with all your soul. It's the whole being. And when I, look, when I see soul, I see this idea, soulish living involves being overwhelmed by a bigger dream. Soulish living is overwhelmed by living for a bigger dream. See, the, the Bible is a story. It's a big story. And when you get into it, it changes your soul. You see that? It brings greater love for God because you're loving him with your soul, you, because you're, you're falling into a greater story. It's like reading C.S. Lewis Chronicles. You read the Chronicles and you understand the greater story is Aslan. And Aslan fights for Narnia and wins it back. It's a great story and we're part of that. There is a painting that I want you to see. And the painting, just, just stare at it for a minute. It's the, it's the painting of the boy Raleigh. It was painted by John Everett Mala in the 1800s. Sits in the Tate Museum in London. And it's the picture of Sir Walter Raleigh, who was a great explorer, the intrepid explorer under Queen Elizabeth I. And I want you to see two things. First of all, notice the young boy is staring. He's, he's mesmerized by something, by some great story. And then notice the old sailor who's pointing out beyond the blue horizon. See, what captivates the mind, what, what changed the heart of this great explorer, according to Malay, who painted it, is a good storyteller. He painted the picture to describe how a sailor, 
imagined a greater story of exploration of what lied beyond, what lay beyond the horizon. And Raleigh, you can see it in his eyes. He's getting it. He sees it. Do you see it? See, your soul has to be captivated by a greater story. Okay, so here we are. The greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And here's what I want you to understand. Until that becomes the greatest love in your life, you will continue to be restless. You need to learn to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. What are you going to do this week? What change are you going to make this week? What's one thing you are ready to do this week that will change the desires of your heart so that you might understand what it really means to live the greatest commandment that Jesus ever gave, which is to love God? Let's pray. So, Father, I pray for our church. I pray for all that are watching. I pray for those that are broken. I pray for the broken heart. I pray for the fearful heart. I pray for the heart that uh, has wandered. And I pray you'd bring us back, bring us all back. Our restlessness would end when we find our rest in you this morning. Bring us back in Jesus' name. Standing here in your presence In a grave so relentless I am one By perfect love Wrapped within the arms of heaven In a peace that lasts forever Sinking deep In mercy sea I'm
You are with us, within us, all around us, God. And I just want to pray for every single person watching today that your favor would be upon them, that your favor would be upon their family and their children and their children's children, God. Lord, I just ask for you to bless the River Church and everyone else who's watching, whether from far or from close or just down the street. God, I pray that your favor would come upon us, Lord. And Lord, that we would know that you are with us in our weeping and rejoicing, in our coming and our going. God, you have never left our side. And Lord, we praise you. You are good. You are with us. We give you our hearts of worship, Jesus. We are nothing without you, God. Help us, Lord, to love you with our heart, our mind, and our soul. Reveal yourself to us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Thank you for joining us, River Church. We are so glad you are with us. We love you. You don't want to miss out on connecting with us, so join us on Facebook, Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, read Closing the Distance, and have a great week. River Church, James Pettifield, Senior Beach Pastor. If you're like me, it's been terrible not being able to have our beach service. So in celebration of the beaches opening up on Wednesday for specific purposes, we are here to provide you a beach service in two minutes, in real time, all in one take. By the way, we got Will over here. We just bumped into Will, six feet apart, about to go serve. All right, folks, so the key to a beach service right now, you have to be running the entire time. So on three, let's get started. Hey, everybody, James Pettifield's here, your beach pastor. So glad you made it. We have a lot of exciting things in store for you today. First of all, it's 8.30, so our service is getting started. We have about as many people here at 8.30 as we do at a normal pre-COVID beach service at 8.30, so that's a comfort. So anyway, we're gonna start off with a little worship. And so, Jasmine is not here, but I raided my daughter's dress up supply. I got my uke, here we go, ready? Begin. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. Baby, baby, praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I know for that. I got you doing two minutes. Well, get out there and surf, man. River, I love All right. you guys. We had a quick testimony. Hey, you know, when James first asked me to come up here and do a testimony, I wasn't sure what I was going to say. But you know, I never used to wash my hands at all. And I wash my hands a lot more now, so that's really encouraging. Praise the Lord. All right, now, quick message. Woo. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so shortest verse in the Bible. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Point number one, Jesus. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is the answer to every question in Sunday school class, kids. And Jesus loves you. Point number two, wept. It's okay to cry sometimes. Sometimes you're sad. You know what? Pour yourself a bubble bath, put on some boys to men, and cry. And point number three, there's only two words in a sermon, but you have to get three points out of it. So point number three, always have a third point. Okay, we're closing off our service. We can't do communion for a lot of reasons. One, it's sacrilegious on this kind of a video. Two, let's face it. After this whole pandemic, the rip and dip river approach to communion is not going to cut it. Thanks for joining us. Have a great one. This is your beach pastor, James. God bless you. Mwah.